Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with a biographer about his or her work. This time, veteran journalist Daniel DeVisay talks with fellow biographer and bio member John, better known as Jack, Farrell. DeVisay's latest book, King of the Blues, The Rise and Reign of B.B. King, was published by Grove Press in October 2021. DeVisay has written several biographies, including examinations of actors Don Knox and Andy Griffin and competitive cyclist Greg LeMond. Jack began this interview by asking Daniel about the relationship between biography and journalism. One thing I would uh, like to start off with is you began as a journalist and moved into biography. Is there some reason, given the fact that the field is somewhat dominated by Robert Caro and David McCullough and Ron Chernow, Jane Levy and others who have made that switch, that draws journalists to biography? Well, you know, I think that I'd been in the news business about 20 years when I got my first serious inquiry from a literary agent about doing a book. And it came on the heels of a a story that ran in the Washington Post on the front page. It was just about a woman who was graduating from Montgomery College. And this uh, was happening in her late 40s. And she had uh, recovered from sort of total amnesia. So it was a, a zinger, a humdinger of a graduation story, basically. And a literary agent in New York saw it. And that became my first book, which I collaborated on with that woman, Sue Mech. And then after that book, I went into books full time. And I didn't mean to go into biography. Um, I certainly meant to go into nonfiction. I think that if I had any specific ideas, it was kind of to keep doing what I was already doing, which was to do stories that had me interviewing people and shaping stories out of living, breathing people, you know, stories that allowed me to use my interview skills as well as my research and writing skills. But I feel comfortable writing about someone like Greg LeMond or even B.B. King. He, he died recently, but many of his close friends are still around. And I did scads of interviews. And that's just something I know how to do, you know, from doing it in newspapers for all these years. You also do subjects who were sort of they don't have presidential libraries with 300 oral histories at your disposal. So the tactics that you learned as a journalist of finding people, tracking them down, and uh, getting them to talk are obviously helpful. Yeah, you know, I've yet to write about somebody who left a big written legacy. I saw a few samples of Andy Griffith's writing. I saw more than a few samples of Don Knotts writing. He actually wrote the first draft of his own memoir. So he wrote a lot. But Greg LeMond, I think I saw like two handwritten lists that he'd written. And that was all I ever saw that he'd written. B.B. King wrote these huge volumes of his little black book of uh, friends in different cities. And that was really just a like an address book. I only ever saw his lyrics, really, and, and a few samples of his writing. So yeah, I, I, I've never written a book about somebody who wrote a huge amount. Yeah. I just want to note for our listeners that Daniel also, in his career as a journalist, helped free two men 
from death row. Is that correct? Uh, it was two cases, three men. All of them were serving life terms in Florida prisons. And this was the, the Gene Miller School, Gene Miller being the twice decorated Pulitzer Prize winning Miami Herald reporter and editor, who I think won both of his Pulitzers for helping free wrongly accused men from prison. That's a wonderful tradition of the Miami Herald. And uh, I, along with my sometime partner, Wanda Nimarzo, um, we wrote sort of advocacy journalism that got two convictions overturned. Yeah, congratulations. Uh, leads me to another question based on journalism is, did your training help you to discern when somebody you were talking to who had plenty of motives to lie to you was telling the truth or not? Oh, boy. Uh, I try to do scene-based writing. And where I can, I try to look at five or 10 different accounts of the same scene. And you start to see that either the accounts are the same or they diverge. I'll give an example. Um, the band U2 either did or didn't walk into BB's dressing room and announce that they'd written a song for him, which would be cheeky because, I mean, he was the king and, and they were this kind of scruffy band. So one account was that they wrote this song, When Love Comes to Town, and presented it to him. The other version is that BB asked them to write a song for him because they were so famous and could help his career. And I had two or three or four versions of each. But if you look at U2's own kind of memoirs and you look at BB's own accounting, they concur that BB went to U2. And in that case, I footnote it. So right there at the bottom of the page, it says there's another version of this. You know, I don't want to necessarily always make the choice for the reader of which is the right story. Yeah. yeah. So before we get to the next book, give us a little background of your own biography. Well, I was born in Chicago in a neighborhood called South Shore, which is kind of the next door neighborhood to Hyde Park. Jesse Jackson lived a few doors down. I think I played with his children. Anyway, I decided uh, after the end of college that I would get into news uh, because it just seemed like it would be fun and that it would be good for my skill set. I was somebody who did real well on short deadlines. So I figured daily newspapers were the thing for me. And my wife, Sophie, and I both went into that field and I wound up doing all these different beats, but I was only seldom allowed to do exactly what I wanted to do. In newspapers, most of the time you get assigned a beat. So I worked assigned beats for most of my career. There were wonderful times, like I had a super general assignment job at the Miami Herald for about a year where I could do absolutely anything in the state of Florida, which was incredible. Uh, but then I went to the Washington Post and started out there as an education reporter, which I could do and was good at, but it wouldn't have been my first choice. So when I went into books, I set out to do all the stuff I'd ever wanted to do, but hadn't had the chance to do. So my first book was a psychological memoir, you know, fit for the feature section, I guess. The second book was about old Hollywood and television and film, Andy Griffith, Don Knotts. The third book was about sports. I'd never done any sports writing, really. And sports writing is amazing. And then this B.B. King book is music. I grew up playing the piano and then playing the French horn. And I was very conversant with the sort of basic corpus of classical music. By the time I was an adult, I switched over into rock and roll, played in cover bands. I've got a Gibson Les Paul behind the piano there that is worn out from hundreds of gigs that I played. I kind of snuck music articles in here and there. So there you go. That's why this book. And coming from Chicago was no uh, drawback for writing about the blues. 
Oh, uh, the first show that I went to was, I think, was Stevie Ray Vaughan and Albert Collins. Oh. <laughs> and when I was a little older and was allowed to go into these clubs, I saw Sun Seals, Otis Rush were two of my all-time faves. I didn't realize they were two of the all-time greats. They were just favorites of mine. Before we get back to B.B. King, very quickly, uh, are you also a cyclist? When I was... 19 or 18, one of those summers, I commuted by bicycle from the north side of Chicago to the suburb of Des Plaines for a job every day. I think one way it was about 18 miles. That was probably the peak of my cycling. Okay. I never raced, but I was a very avid cyclist, but uh, no longer. And then uh, also quickly, how were you drawn to do this book about Don and Andy? Well, I needed a book idea after finishing that co-written psychological memoir. And my sister-in-law, Francie, is the widow of Don Knotts, the great actor. They were uh, in love and a couple for like 20 years when Don died in 2006. So Francie suggested, why don't you do a biography of Don? And I was thinking of doing that, but then the guy who was my literary agent at the time had the brilliant idea, well, why don't you do both of them, the sheriff and the deputy? And that is where that book came from, Andy and Don. It became a story of the friendship between the actors, Andy Griffith and Don Knotts, um, the sheriff of Mayberry and the deputy. And uh, that book's kind of my greatest hit. It's the one book I've written that is still selling pretty well, even like six years after it published. Now, did you find that saying that you were Don Knotts' brother-in-law opened doors that weren't there, say, for example, with Lamond or with B.B. King? Yes, that opened all sorts of doors. People, I think, trusted me more because they knew that I was related to him. Uh, it helped me a lot, especially writing about Don, a little less with Andy and Andy Griffith's people. But yeah, it gave me access. They always talk about access in the publishing business. Do you have access? With my next book about the cyclist, uh, Lamont, I had no connection to him whatsoever, except that he was a big hero when I was a kid. I had to establish access to him and to his friends and loved ones out of nothing. and. I was able to do that. I, I gained the trust of all those people. And oddly enough, I think I actually got more interviews with the cycling book than I had with Andy and Don. And with BB, it was the same thing all over again. I was starting from nothing. I had to convince all the people who were near and dear to BB King that I was for real and that I was serious about the project and that I would do a good job. But, you know, by the time I started on the BB King book, I had three books and had done books that were respectful. And I guess, that part of it gets a little easier with each book that they see that that's what I do. I do sell mostly celebratory books that celebrate great iconic people, you know, like BB. Do you find in going in with that thesis that you're sometimes surprised or find it difficult to handle the flaws of your subject? You know, I set out usually to write about people, not only who I admire, but who are admirable people. But the first thing I do is I ask around, you know, is this a good person? Um, is there any huge skeleton in the closet? Because, well, with B.B. King, I, I mean, he was beloved and I kind of knew that going in, but I, everybody I interviewed, especially at the beginning, I kept asking them, is there any dark side to the man? I asked the same about Greg Lamond, the cyclist. Is there <laughs> an evil side to this person? And I guess I'm fortunate that the closest I ever came to having a subject in one of my books who was more complex probably was Andy Griffith himself, because he did have a, a serious temper and could be kind of mean to fans sometimes. And it's a little harder 
to portray Andy Griffith as a universally benevolent, happy guy. Uh, but everybody else I've written about has been kind of like really nice people. And BB, I mean, it's ridiculous. Everybody just loved the man. I, I don't think I ever heard a compromising story about him. I mean, anything that would be flaws, he owned up to in his own memoir. He had plenty of flaws and he was very open about them. Yeah. Drug use and womanizing in the music business is almost laudatory, whereas in politics, it would be a distraction at the least. Well, that's right. I think BB had an addictive personality. He was addicted, I think, at various times to gambling, by his own admission, sort of addicted to sex. I mean, he had romantic partners in every port. Um, an article about my book ran in uh, the Guardian Observer in Britain a week or two ago, and I heard from a woman in Toronto who was one of his loves for many years. And she said, oh, I'm so happy that you're telling his complete true story at last. You know, I mean, there have been wonderful books about BB, but I had the good fortune of being able to come in at the end and tell the whole story. Yeah. One of the interesting things about the Le Mans book that I did not know was that he had come back from a near death experience, henceforth the title of the book, The Comeback. And also at the end of his life, he got in a huge controversy with Lance Armstrong and the bicycle community over doping. Did you know all these things going in or is this something that you learned as you did the biography? Yeah, um, I think I was walking around my neighborhood one day and it just occurred to me that Greg LeMond's story was almost unknown and it just seemed like an amazing sports story, an amazing human story. He won the Tour de France for himself and for America for the first time in 1986. This is almost a century into the Tour de France. Finally, an American wins it. Huge deal. And then the next year, as he's preparing to defend his title, he is accidentally shot and nearly killed while hunting. I think he was hunting pheasants or something in California. You didn't hear about it, first of all, because nobody really cares much about cycling as a sport in this country, but also because his handlers downplayed the injury, because if you're injured and you're an athlete, you don't want people to know it necessarily. But he fought and clawed his way back over two very, very humbling and difficult years. And thus was the stage set for the greatest, a lot of people think the greatest Tour de France ever in history. And that's saying something. 1989, the favorites were uh, Le Monde and uh, a Frenchman named Laurent Fignon, who nobody in this country knows much about, but he's a, a wonderful cyclist from France. And it came down to this epic standoff at the end where they were separated in the standings by a, a hair's breadth. And there was a decisive time trial. That's a race against the clock where each person rides separately and they clock them. And in the end, Le Mans triumphed by a tiny margin of eight seconds, which in the Tour de France is, is it's like a pebbles with, you know, it's the closest finish ever in the Tour de France. And that was why I thought there was a book there. Um, great uh, description of the race, but also of the techniques and uh, of the uh, handicap that the Frenchman was trying to overcome with uh, an injury of his own. Oh, and then the other piece that I felt made it a good book was that Lance Armstrong made cycling so very, very, very popular in this country. And to this day, you know, anyone of a certain age group knows all about the Tour de France because of those years when Lance dominated it. And I figured that a lot of those people might want to know about this character who was kind of like the Lance before Lance. Mm -hmm. And then there's this important difference that Greg's accomplishments to this day are, are not tainted by anything. In fact, a congressman read my book and put Greg Lamond up for the Congressional Gold Medal, which is the highest 
civilian award that Congress bestows, and Greg won that award. Now, when you went to the publishing world with your proposal or your idea for Le Mans, did they say, oh, come on, Daniel, why can't you do Dick Van Dyke or Danny Thomas? Did they try to peg you? Every book I've done has been in a completely different genre. And my literary agent, Deborah Grovner, who's a wonderful agent, all she cares about is story. If you've got a really gripping story, I don't think she probably cares who it's about. As I've learned this past decade, that it's harder to sell something that's not a really, really big topic. Let's just suffice to say that if you're trying to sell a book idea about somebody who's not really, really, really well known, kind of at the top of whatever field, like Bibi, if, if it's somebody lower down the pecking order, it's much harder. I think the reason I was able to prevail upon my publisher to, to buy this LeMond book, Greg LeMond, was that, you know, the fact is he is the greatest at what he did and should be a lot better known than he is. And so it was a little bit of a gamble to publish the book, but I think they accepted my premise that it was as a sports story, it was just second to none, you know, just an amazing story and should be really well known. And, and it is better known now, even than it was five years ago. So having written a successful book about sports and you say, okay, this time I want to do the blues. Did the publishing industry, um, how did they react to that? The publisher Grove Atlantic loved it. They were shocked that there wasn't one from the last handful of years. They were amazed that the last major biography of BB was published in 1980. And in between, you know, I, I think BB's memoir came out in the mid 90s, but really since then, there hadn't been really a big bio on him. So the publisher was astonished and thrilled at, at that niche hadn't been filled basically. And as for me doing it, uh, my publisher and my, my agent, my editor all knew that I was fairly versatile. I mean, yeah, I've written like 5,000 articles about 5,000 different topics at different newspapers over the years, but I read music. I learned to play the piano before I was 10. I spent years in a Chicago youth symphony playing Tchaikovsky and Beethoven and Mahler and all this stuff. And then I, I learned the guitar. I played in gigs for money for years and years and years. So I'm really seriously invested in music as a passion. I told my publisher, I feel more comfortable writing about a musical topic, certainly more than I did about writing about cycling, for goodness sake. I, I mean, all I ever knew about cycling was as a fan, you know, but with music, I feel very grounded. I mean, your ears are the thing when you're writing about music, your ears, if you have decent ears, and I feel like I have a pretty good ear, never lets you down. So I, that's where my confidence comes from in the end. So tell me about the process of writing BB King. Did you, uh, did you have a good time? Oh God, it was an incredible journey. I think I started working on the book in 2016. And I know that I was down in Mississippi in March and April of 2017, because Easter Sunday, I was at the church that I think had been BB's school when he was like eight, you know, um, and I sat through a worship at this wonderful church. And I interviewed a few living souls who had been his classmates and interviewed a bunch of descendants of his wonderful teacher, Luther Henson, uh, Archie Fair, the wonderful reverend of the church who played the guitar, their descendants. I interviewed them. Um, I spent a day riding around the uh, farms where Bibi and his family worked as sharecroppers. This was when Bibi was Riley King. He was a boy and was living in sort of perpetual debt because the sharecropping system 
generally left you in debt at the end of the year. Um, you would earn some money from raising crops, but then you owed all this stuff to the landowner and you usually wound up in debt at year's end. And there was a painful story, but that was the cycle from which Riley King escaped first to become a tractor driver, but then he found that he could earn even more money <laughs> playing his guitar on the sidewalk because he had this wonderful voice and a real command of the old Delta blues. And, and so then suddenly he was making even more money playing the guitar than he was making from driving his tractor. And I, I went to all of the stops along the, the BB King trail. <laughs> and, and, and then I spent God, the next two, three years just interviewing everybody he'd ever been close to who was still alive. And, and they, they're the ones who told his story you know, more than me. I, told most of it through the voices of the people close to BB, his bandmates, who were really kind of his family, and the people who were kind of his entourage, or their surviving children or spouses, and his wonderful ex-wife, Sue, uh, his nephew, Walter, who I'm going to see in Nashville. Yeah. Give us a, some quick statistics, maybe, about that illustrate his longevity. Oh, well, just to start with, he had already performed 15,000 times by the time that Jerry Hershey wrote a profile of him for Rolling Stone at the end of the 90s. I think that, that I figured out by doing some math that he probably did about 17,000 before the end. And I think that's more gigs than anyone else has done. And in, in I think, 90 different countries. But why is BB so well known? I mean, that was what set me on this path. What BB did was he discovered that he could use his guitar, his electrified, amplified guitar to sort of replicate, extend his voice, his, his own baritone, his, his beautiful baritone, that he could use his guitar as kind of a, an answer to the call of his voice. And this being in like 1949, 1950, he developed this technique of singing and then answering what he just sung with his guitar by playing single string solo. Now, he wasn't the first person to play single string solos on the guitar. Uh, if there was a first person, probably Lonnie Johnson, the great blues jazz man from the 1920s, was one of the first prominent performers to play single string solo guitar where nobody had really done it before. What exactly is single string solo? People had been strumming the guitar for many, many years by the time we get to the 1920s and 1930s. But I don't think that musicians had really developed a way of playing a melody line on the instrument in the way that you would with a violin. Uh, you know, you play a melody on the violin, you, you play a sequence of notes that is kind of like singing. Well, with the guitar, that innovation came later. And I think not until the 20s or the 30s did you have people sort of playing lyrical melodic solos on the guitar. And then when you get to the 1930s, you get amplification and a series of brilliant guitarists. The name I always think of is Charlie Christian, who was a brilliant black American guitarist who played with Benny Goodman. It was one of the first to, to play beautiful amplified solo passages, taking solos, right? In jazzy solo on the guitar. Uh, and then you get to the sort of forties and you get T-Bone Walker, who was BB's great influence. And T-Bone Walker was a singer and band leader who played the guitar and played solos on the guitar. That was very, very rare. If you think of the rhythm and blues charts, they used to be called the race charts in the 40s and into the 50s, band leaders were singers generally, and maybe they played piano, maybe they played a, a golden sax or something, but there were very, 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 very few. Sister Rosetta Tharp was one, very, very few who sang and played the guitar. 
that was almost unknown. It, it boggles the mind to think this because now everybody does it, but the guitar was a back bench instrument. It was relegated to a, a muted rhythmic role, you know, boop, 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 doop, 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 doop. and then along comes BB and he develops, I would say, a new technique of playing the guitar. Uh, he, he took T-Bone Walker's style, Charlie Christian's style, but he took it a step further and learned how to play solos on its guitar that sounded like him singing. Uh, you, you know the movie Spinal Tap? Yes. <laughs> and uh, Nigel Tufnell, where he goes, you just listen to this. That's BB's sound. It's the it's the guitar as a human voice, this beautiful lyrical solo style. That's BB's sound. And I argue in my book that he rolled this sound out around 1950 at a time when nobody was playing the guitar, at least not in a rhythm and blues combo that was on the radio, and popularized it. And by the end of the 1950s, you had a whole new generation of black urban electric blues men, mostly men, who were playing electric guitar like BB. And then you get into the 60s and all of these white guys in Britain, everybody you've ever heard of who came over from Britain in the British invasion, all of them learned to play in this BB King style. And this is the lyrical vocal style of solo guitar that became absolutely ubiquitous in pop music by the end of the 60s. And so by the Woodstock era, every single self-respecting rock band had somebody who played guitar like B.B. King. And that's why he's so well known. So you approach this story. What were the biggest obstacles that you had to overcome? One obstacle was that he had died, if, I guess, a year or two before I started my reporting. And so I only had his voice as he had spoken to other people. I wasn't able to ask him any questions. I wish I could have. Luckily, he gave thousands of interviews. And so... I had his voice in abundance, you know, um, recordings, books, magazine interviews, newspaper interviews. Uh, I ended up with many, 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 many different answers to the same questions over and over that he gave over the years. I think it was a little bit of an impediment that by the time of his death, there was a, a, a pretty difficult probate battle uh, that pitted some of his children against each other and against other players in his uh, legacy and his estate. And that was still very much simmering when I started writing the book. And that became a, a point of some tension. I, it was a little difficult, for example, for me to get through to some of his children. I did interview some of BB's children, but I wasn't able to interview as many as I might have liked. And then just there's a difference between being a guy of my age, I was born in the late 60s, versus a person two or three decades older I wasn't nearly so familiar with the music of BB's childhood and of his young adulthood, the 40s and 50s. You know, I kind of start with <laughs> Little Richard and Elvis and Chuck Berry and Buddy Holly and go forward from there. But I've always had a hard time with stuff from the earlier eras of music. And so I really had to teach myself Roy Brown, Ruth Brown, um, Louis Jordan, all these great artists from the 40s and 50s. And that was a big impediment. And do you begin at the beginning and go forward? Or do you, when you know you've got everything on the Thrill is Gone recording, do you write that and, and put it aside and, and then plug it in when you get to that point in the chronology? You know, because of my newspaper background, I've tried to write my books one chapter at a time. And I think of each chapter as a self-contained thing, as if it were an article for the Washington Post magazine, because I did some of those. And it makes it feel easier and more sane. Like I can, I can do this, you know, if it's just a 7,000 word thing. 
I'm starting to think twice about that though, because with the BB book, I got so much great stuff after I'd already written the chapters and I wound up kind of detonating parts of the chapters and rewriting them and stuff. So never have I reported the entire book and then written the entire book. I may yet learn to do that, but I, I have not. That was Daniel DeVisay speaking with fellow biographer Jack Farrell about his book, King of the Blues, The Rise and Reign of B.B. King, published by Grove Press in October 2021. This interview was recorded online via Zoom on October 1st of this year. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a fantastic day. Bye.